0: Dr. Chris Smith is back, the Naked Scientist, with us uh, to answer those questions that keep you awake at night. Dr. Chris Smith, welcome back, the Naked Scientist. And somebody put me to the post with this question because I've been following the James Webb telescope um, and the evidence that it is collating about the universe. And the question is, the telescope is finding evidence that the Big Bang may not have been our genesis. What could it be pointing to as an origin of the universe?
1: I'm not familiar with that Uh, story. I must admit, um, Clarence, Mm. I, I haven't seen evidence that the James Webb is unpicking the Big Bang yet that we think that the universe began, our universe began 13.8 billion years ago, because that's all the data that we have by reading various measures and interpretations, including something called the cosmic microwave background radiation. There are also what are called polarizations written into that, that can tell us something about the fabric of the early universe. But we can't probe back any further than than, than those early moments, because, of course, there's nothing to look at and there was no one there to see it so a lot of this is groping into the dark by making inferences based on what still exists today and one of the ways we can do that is to look back at the earliest objects the earliest light sources the earliest radiation sources we can still see in the universe and we look at the structure of those we look at how they're changing over time and, and therefore, we know where they are now. We know or what they've become. We know where they were at that point in time, the farthest time we can see back to, which is actually billions of years. And we can then say, well, if that was the trajectory, then let's try and wind the clock back. Let's build a model of what must have been happening to make that turn into that. And therefore, we can wind the clock back a bit further to see where the point of convergence is. But at the moment, we, we don't know. And, and I guess we have to, excuse the pun, watch this space.
0: Are you anticipating a rethink on some
1: fundamental principles that we may have invested in? Uh, not really at the moment um what we know about science is and and the way we do science is science is all about questions not answers it's hypotheses we think we understand how things work and we then develop experiments to test and stress test our understanding and if we discover that we've got it wrong that's really exciting because then we make more questions or we, we make more experiments that can test why we might have got it wrong and go off in another direction there's still lots to learn out there, thank goodness. We have no idea about most of the how the fabric of the universe works. We're beginning to p- put some of it together. But really, it's about really slow incremental understanding and building knowledge based on Finding out what we get wrong. So I, I would actually be very excited if we discover that the, 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 the Big Bang was not how we thought it happened. It almost certainly wasn't. I mean, we're, we're, we're inferring this. We know that there was a point of creation, but beyond that, we don't know what happened. So it is an exciting time to be looking at this sort of subject. So, so You're saying essentially there was nothing before the Big Bang? Well, not in this no, universe. Um, what we don't know is whether there are multiple universes, because there is one branch of physics that considers multiverses. It may well be that there are many, many universes in slightly different dimensions that we can't interact with. They're invisible to us. They may be hovering millimetres in front of our faces. We don't know that they're there. Th- there's one way we might be able to test whether they exist, and this is if gravity and gravitational waves can propagate between them, which is why there is an interest, apart from the other things that gravitational waves can teach us, there is, there is a motivation to look for gravitational waves because if they do propagate between these different universes, it may give us uh, insights into those universes. So it may well be that, that this is just one of many universes Why it popped into existence, we don't know. One theory was that if you have black holes which are drawing in material in one universe, perhaps they're spewing it out through an entity known as a white hole into another universe, although some people have disparaged that idea. Uh, So it may be a big bang in one universe is the the arse end of a black hole in another universe. This is all theoretical physics. We have no idea uh, in reality. We have no evidence at this stage. We're just slowly collecting data and building it into plausible models and scenarios that might explain why we're here and why we look the way we do and why the universe that we're in works the way it does
0: but exciting times james we're bringing us uh, uh maybe a whole lot of more questions and some answers to our questions as well Let, let's move on um a question in about an amputation my leg was amputated 25 years ago when i dream i dream that my leg is still a part of me uh could this be uh, could that bring phantom pains on quote unquote
1: It's not unusual for people who have lost a part of their body to go to sleep, dream about themselves and they have back the missing body part. And this is because we form an image of our body in our mind and we have a map of our body superimposed on our brain. So if I go to a certain part of the brain that controls a certain part of the body, I can pick out the different parts of that brain that will control the different body parts or will receive sensations from the different body parts because there is a physical map, almost like a slightly deformed and distorted person on the brain which corresponds this bit of brain, this bit of body. And it it looks like a person with a giant head, massive mouth, um, huge hands with massive fingers, a fairly scrawny body and big toes and that's called the homunculus. And because we have that map and representation of our body on our brains, when you lose a body part, that doesn't suddenly disappear, and you don't lose the nerve cells in the brain that did control or receive sensation from the missing body part. So unsurprisingly, when we go to sleep and we start to dream and you reactivate or recruit different parts of the brain and ask them to to generate various activity and and exchange information with other brain areas, which is what happens when you go to sleep and you dream. Different parts of the brain become much more active than normal, and they subserve the same functions they would when you're awake and present those things to your dreaming subconscious, you will experience it as though the, there is that representation of your body. So it's unsurprising because you've got the nerve cells there that y- you would see that part as still existing. And it does take a little while before your memories begin to rewrite or overwrite with the, the new representation of your body. Phantom pain is a bit different. Phantom pain is that a person who has lost a body part will describe excruciating pain in the missing area of the body as though everything's bunched up tight and and squeezing in and they can't relieve the pressure. And we think that the reason this happens, or at least one theory as to why this happens, is that the same brain areas I've just been talking about, which are used to receiving signals from that part of the body, When they receive nothing because that part of the body is missing, they assume that they're not listening hard enough. So they turn up the volume a bit. They amplify the signals that they are getting a bit more. It's a bit like if we tune into the radio and there's a lot of interference and you can't really hear what the radio signals are, you might turn it up and you get more hiss. Well, that hiss eventually becomes more prominent than any signals that are coming. And so as a result, you tend to focus on the hiss. You don't focus on the missing body part signals because they're not there and the hiss turns into discomfort and pain and there are quite elegant experiments that psychologists can do with mirror experiments where you show a person the mirror image of the part of the body that they still have so for instance if you've lost your right hand you put the left hand into a mirror chamber so that the person can see a reflection of their left hand making it look like they now have a right hand again and if you show them relaxing and unclenching the left hand they then in their brain do the same to that missing right hand in those neurological territories that would control the right hand and they get some relief and you can also do the other cunning experiment where if you fool someone into thinking they're looking at their right hand and 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 you've you've shown them a plastic hand and then you hit the plastic hand with a hammer they will think it really, really hurts when you do that because the brain maps that visual image onto the part of the body in the brain that that would normally represent that body part. So I think it's it's two slightly different entities here. One is a a memory map of what you have in in your brain corresponding to your body. The other is a physical absence of a body part having a neurological consequence of that absence, which leads to a discomfort syndrome.
0: Hello, Clarence and Dr. Smith. Just ask a question,
1: why is it that the more you scratch an itch, the more it itches? Mm. Thanks very much. <laughs> We've all been there, haven't we, with that itch that you can't scratch and when you do, you intensify it. really good example of this is itchy eyes because of hay fever. And the bottom line is do not touch them if you can avoid it because you will make it worse. The answer to this is itch is a wind-up phenomenon. And you have in your skin a population of nerve cells that are sensitive to certain families of chemicals, which when they see those chemicals, it activates those nerve fibers. And those nerve fibers are itch nerves that when they're active signal to your spinal cord, this part of my body is itchy. So if you scratch a part of the body which is potentially itchy, what you do is to damage the tissue a bit more you push whatever's making you itchy further into the skin. If it's pollen, for example, going into your eye, you push the pollen further into your eye. You burst open pollen grains, for example, and release more proteins that you can be reacting to. And you also cause populations of cells called mast cells, which are big cells that sit in the outer layers of the tissues around the outside of our body, and they're there to defend our tissue from invaders. Those big cells are crammed with histamine and when you physically perturb them by rubbing, scratching or itching, you can make them burst or pump out even more histamine and so they produce more of the chemical that's making you itch in the first place and that increased itching makes you want to scratch more. So there is a positive feedback loop there and that's why I'm saying if you do have itchy eyes with hay fever or you have itchy skin with eczema, the worst thing you can do, actually, is to scratch it because you will make it itch more.
0: Uh,
1: good morning, Clarence.
0: Can Dr. Chris explain the effects of, I think it's pronounced, polyfibromyalgia, if, if, if that, uh, Doc?
1: Well, fibromyalgia is a condition which is quite poorly understood. And people who have this will complain of pain in their muscles and joints which is fluctuant. So some days they have good days, some days they have bad days. When they're having a bad day, it can be extremely disabling. It can affect parts of their body anywhere and it also tends to be associated with other symptoms like profound fatigue, and, um, people also say they get very down unsurprisingly when they feel like this and, um, and it can rob them of their motivation and then they'll feel a bit better and then they can do a bit more and it, and it can come on quite abruptly in people. They, they they have a fluctuating situation where they're okay one minute and then they might have a really bad spell. And sometimes if they do a lot, they find that they then pay the price later. Now we do not understand this condition. It seems to share features in common with other fatigue illnesses like chronic fatigue syndrome. There appear to be more women affected than men by this, but we don't know what's going on. There might be in some people an infective element and there are various viruses that could do things to the way the immune system works and trigger the formation of various populations of immune cells or antibodies that might be underlying this and related conditions. In other cases there can be a psychological element to it. And so at the moment, people are investigating this from all those different perspectives to try to work out the best way to help people, because it may be that there's a range of different conditions going on here. And they're under the umbrella term that these conditions are called one particular thing. They all present in a similar way, but there may be different pathways that people get there. They share some features in common with some aspects of of post-viral infection with COVID. So people are looking at it from that perspective as well. But at the moment, we don't have definitive answers on what this is.
0: Uh, then we've got a voice note here. Let's uh, take a listen, Joe. Patrick from Seabrock. Now, as regards tears. Now, tears are basically saline, and I'm afraid to say, yes, I've tasted my own tears. Um, but so when we sleep and we wake up, and that sleep in our eyes, uh, it's yellow, sometimes going a couple of other tones, that crust. Why has it got a color? Is it, as I suspect that as with sweating that my, my eyes are just basically urinating and I'm that is urea that is uh please tell me
1: right okay just before we move on to that one I I interpreted the last question as fibromyalgia I hope I heard you correctly Clarence. There is another condition called polymyalgia rheumatica which is quite different and if that was what the person was asking please do ask us again either this week later or next week because we can look at that condition which is a completely different entity. Now onto to tears. Tears are made in your lacrimal glands. Lacrimo in Latin means I cry and the lacrimal gland sits uh, on the outside edge of your eye and it's fed by blood vessels which pass through the gland which extracts from the blood the watery part of the blood the plasma and passes it into the ducts which then collect it together add various things to it take some things back out of it and then secrete it onto your eye as your tear film and what's in tears is yes salts because your bloodstream contains a lot of sodium and a bit of potassium and some chloride and bicarbonate ions But also a lot of protein and what we secrete into tears include antibodies, classes of antibodies known as IgA antibodies which are really good at soaking up any microorganisms that might land on your eyes and try and infect you. There are also other proteins and lubricant molecules there including squidgy molecules called mucins whose role is to lubricate the eye almost like oil in an engine but on your eye and also to soak up, mop up and make and soften, if you like, any foreign bodies and other entities that get into your eyes so that you don't have gritty eyes all the time. When you go to sleep at night, your tear production rate drops because you haven't got your eyes open at night. So the amount of evaporation of tears from your eye surface is much lower. And so you don't want to waste the water when you go to sleep by secreting loads and loads of tears, which with closed eyes would just build up and spew down your face. So you turn down the rate of tear production in the same way that you turn down the rate of saliva production. This means that the tear film tends to dwell in your eyes for a bit longer and it tends to be a bit more concentrated because there's a lower rate of production. So you get some drying and evaporation towards the middle of your eye where your eye meets your nose because that's where the tears drain normally into your nose down your nasolacrimal duct. And so what you're seeing in that build up of what we call sleep, the stuff that builds up there, is dried out tears, which include these mucin molecules, proteins, bits of antibody and also dead muck, debris, skin and everything collected together. And the reason it has a colour is because all of those proteins themselves will slightly affect the the way that light passes through them and absorb some colours of light more than others, giving them a yellow tinge in the same way that plasma, the liquid that's in your blood, when you separate the red blood cells out, looks a straw colour because of the proteins that are in there.
0: We have Denise on the line from Table Tableview, uh, and I think it involves eyes as well. Denise, go ahead. Yeah. Morning, Clarence. Morning, Dr. Smith. I watched a program last night on forensics where this woman had murdered her husband by putting eye drops in his drink. The eye drops can be bought over the counter when it, and they found out it had a certain ingredient which causes heart attacks. So I was uh, going to ask Dr. how um, how come it's safe to put in your eyes? It's got um,
1: an ingredient with heart attacks. Wow, what a, what a story, quite macabre. I'm not sure what that would be, but the reason that you can rub something on your skin or put it in your eyes but not take it systemically is quite simple, which is it's all about where the stuff goes and in what sort of quantity so we can put things on our skin quite safely for example but which if we ate loads of it would cause a problem and this is because when you rub it on your skin the the level of absorption through into the deeper tissues and therefore into the bloodstream and therefore delivery to other parts of the body is really really low whereas when you take it systemically if you swallow something or if you inject something it can access all areas and therefore if there are vulnerable parts of the body it can get to them and poison them really good example of this is your own digestive juices your pancreas is full of the most lethal cocktail of digestive juices which if it escaped from inside your pancreas and got into your bloodstream is quite capable of killing you in minutes snakes have venom in their venom glands which if they were to get that out of their venom glands and into the rest of their body would almost certainly cause them enormous harm especially if they bit another snake. They're not immune to their own venom. It's all about keeping the stuff where it's safe to have it. And when you put something on your eyes, the amount of delivery which is beyond the eye is very limited. It's not zero, and the reason it's not zero is because when we put eye drops in our eyes, they mix with the tears which drain into your nose and you then swallow it. So there will be, I, I think this story is a bit dubious because you will swallow eye drops. They do end up in your gut, but the amount that goes down there is going to be really very low. But that's because the tears carry them down the nasal duct, into your nose, and then down the back of your throat. And you've probably noticed when you have put eye drops in, if you've had an eye infection and put some chloramphenicol antibiotic in your eye, you've noticed a funny taste in your mouth afterwards, and, and that's why.
0: OK, another voice note in. Uh, let's take a listen, Joe
1: morning, a quick question for the Naked Scientist, if he has time. My name's Tim from Gordons Bay. Um, my partner tastes fresh coriander as stink bug.
0: Um,
1: for me it tastes fine, but she can't bear the taste of it. Uh, or even the smell of it tastes like uh, smells like stink bug. Any thoughts on that? Hello Tim. Yes, and we had somebody who worked with us at the Naked Scientist called Adam, who was from Ireland, who said exactly the same thing. He said it was repugnant and he was repulsed by the taste of coriander, and it made it was a horrible, soapy, vile flavour for him. I absolutely love the stuff. Now that we know that there are certain people in the population who have genes that make them super tasters these genes affect a repertoire of the olfactory, in other words, smell detectors that you have in your smell system and also in your taste system. And these changes in these genes mean that certain molecules are interpreted differently by your nervous system. So as a result, you tend to notice some flavours more strongly than others. And this has the effect of making people who carry these particular forms of these genes really find the strong flavours in green leafy vegetables including coriander quite deterrent and so they tend to eat fewer vegetable substances and products in their diet than people who don't carry those genes and there are certain populations around the world who have that particular gene makeup more than others it's concentrated in certain populations and certain geographies and it may well be that that's the case with your partner.
0: And I think we've got time for one last voice note. Let's take a listen, Joe. Hi, morning, morning, guys. Uh, morning, uh, Dr. Smith. Uh, tell me, uh, I'd like to know, how does aquamation work? Uh, they say it's like cremation and something like that, but what is the procedure? Uh, what happens? I mean, I'd, I'd really, really like to know. I know it's a new thing in uh, in South Africa, I presume, Um, So, yeah, I'd really like to know that. Thanks. Great Uh, show. Cheers, John Kelshover. Bye.
1: Thank you for the kind words. I'm I'm not an expert on this. Uh, I'm aware that this process, I think, didn't Desmond Tutu have this? Um, The idea is that you put someone in a solution of an alkaline material, sodium hydroxide or something like that, and it causes the body to fall to pieces by slowly dissolving effectively. So rather than burn someone up, you chemically dissolve them that's the limit of my knowledge at this stage so I don't know how good it is I don't know whether environmentally this is better than if you were to have a cremation because it's I think in some people's minds it's it's some um, cremation can be a bad thing because of burning I think it takes seven gallons of diesel to do a cremation was one statistic I read um, I'm not sure if that's right so i will have to fact check that but I don't know if it's on environmental grounds better to have this process than have a cremation but I think that was what was being done. They were using an alkaline solution to degrade tissue because when you put a alka, strong alkali on tissue such as we, we're made of, the proteins are very quickly dismantled under those conditions and they fall apart and you, you turn into a sort of human soup and it might be that that was what uh, they, they were doing. But I will, I'll tell you I what, I'll go and have a look for next time. That can be my homework for next time.